The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. I'd like to begin by setting the record straight on uh, something that I grew up believing. And maybe you heard this too, um, but I, I remember growing up and I heard that if you swallowed gum, it would stay in your body for a number of years. I'm just curious, just some audience participation at Cooper City online. If you're sitting by yourself online, audience participation still counts. Um, And and here at the West Pines campus, uh, how many years did you hear it stayed in your body when you swallowed gum? How many years? Seven was the majority of what I heard there, okay? You swallow gum, and it stays in your body for seven years is what I grew up being traumatized by, okay? Because there were some ill-fated moments where I swallowed a piece of gum and realized like, you know, I'm a little kid and I'm like, I'm gonna be driving before this comes out of my body, okay? And if I swallow enough gum, I'm slowly gonna be weighed down by the amount of gum stuck in my body. Well, um, at, at Yale, they did a study which I'm grateful they did the study. And I obviously was really pressing down on someone, you know, that they would give that energy to that study. Anyway, they did a study and good news. Okay, I have good news for you. At max, it will last in your body is seven days, not seven years. That is good news, so you don't have to worry about that. But there are some things like that that we hear, I remember hearing growing up, that just kind of get passed down Um, because it sounded right, someone said it, someone said it to someone else, maybe it got misunderstood or whatever, and slowly it gets passed down, and kind of like unwittingly, it just, that misinformation keeps getting passed down. But sometimes information that gets passed down um, gets passed down intentionally because it's more convenient for the person passing it down. Like they intentionally tweak the truth or take a perspective because it's more convenient for them. And um, to illustrate this, I, I, I came across an article article, it came out about a month ago, and it was parents uh, coming out and confessing lies that they told to their children. For example, one parent came out and they, they said, look, if I'm honest, this is what I told my kids. They believed it for years. I told them that the local pet store was the zoo. <laughs> so to save myself some money, I would just take them to the pet store, you know? And I'm hearing that, I'm like, man, if I could go back in time, that's just, that's brilliant, you know? There's no zebras at that zoo, but you know, you still, okay. Another set, parents, they confessed. We told our kids, if you hear the music of the ice cream truck, it means they're all out of ice cream, unfortunately. (laughs) I'm sorry. So... They're all out, honey. That's what they mean when they go by, all right? So there's no, there's no more ice cream. Now, how do you ever know when they have ice cream? I don't know. It's stealthily, silently going through the neighborhood, and nobody knows. Okay, so sometimes information gets passed down, and it's kind of unwittingly passed down. It sounded good to someone, and it just kind of goes down through culture. But sometimes information gets passed down, 
And it's kind of intentionally tweaked or it's intentionally slanted or it's just intentionally just lied about or covered up or overemphasized or whatever. It's done intentionally because it's convenient for the person sharing it. And so then that leaves every generation sorting through how do we know what's right? And so for um, many generations, much of humanity, it's like, well, it's tradition. I mean, you just, that's what's always been. That's what's always been right. That's what's always been true. It's tradition. That's, that's what you do. That's what my family did. It's what my family's parents did and their parents, and their parents, their parents. It's tradition. What our culture tends to do, I mean, across the board, our generation, the way we address that is we say something different. Look, we say there is, um, we've got to be clear on what is true, and that's so important for every individual. So far, absolutely. But then this is what our generation does. And we talked about this last week, but we've got to relay this foundation. We say, okay, the best way to discern what is true and to weed through the unintentional misinformation and the intentional misinformation is for every person to find their own truth. Is every person, don't, be, don't succumb to tradition, don't succumb to any, what anyone else says, but look inside and find your own truth. Now, what we talked about last week, and I want to take a second on this because we can't go further in this series uh, without just maintaining this foundation. What we talked about in part one is that that idea of looking inside and finding your own truth, which is taught to children all the way up to adults, like that is so pervasive in our culture that you look inside and you find and follow your own truth. We discussed last week is that is not a logical way to operate for a few reasons. For starters, no one can possibly live that out consistently. And, and no one does. For, for example, I know that's a big sweeping statement, but there's just some really basic examples of this. To say that the only truth is the one that I find inside is to reject, for example, all of science. Because science as uh, an industry, science as, uh, as a theory is built on I start with my hypothesis of what I think is probably right, and then through exploration and experimentation, I discover what actually is, a fixed reality that is, and then I conform and correct my hypothesis of what I thought was right, right? If I twist and tweak my experimentation or my exploration in order to keep my hypothesis correct and protect my original hypothesis of what I think was right, we call that bad, dangerous science. So to operate with the assumption of, man, I'm, the way to find truth is everyone look inside, that is diametrically opposed to the whole theory 
of science. It is diametrically opposed to technology itself. Technology, what humanity has done, is we've learned fixed truths about reality and generation upon generation built on them so that we can find uh, greater technology and greater capacity. So looking inside, it's not logical because no one could consistently uh, follow it. It's not, you can't follow that. Second reason that's illogical. It's illogical to say, look inside, and that truth is found within. The second reason that that's logical is that is an untenable way to coexist with other humans. You cannot build a community or a society on the idea of everyone find what's right for you. That's actually a historic definition of anarchy, because let me just illustrate it in one way. We, we have to have fixed laws and say, no, that is wrong. You are not allowed to do that. You need to correct yourself. Everyone believes this. If I look inside my heart and say, or at least everyone operates with this reality. If I look inside and if what I find inside is prejudice, we would say, and it's true, that needs to be corrected, because it does. If I look inside and say I find prejudice, I don't say, well, I'm going to be true to that. We would reject that as an untenable way to walk through society. It's illogical because you cannot live consistently by looking inside and finding truth. It's illogical because it's untenable to build a society on that. And the third thing is it's not logical because that is not a healthy way for me to operate personally. What if the thing I need to be freed from is what I find inside? How do I free myself from the brokenness that I find inside? Again, like the point I just referenced a moment ago, like there are times that each one of us actually, we need, what's a healthy way to live is to expect to look inside and to find things that need to be shaped and corrected. That's humility. So there, it's an illogical way to operate about, hey, truth, everyone find your own truth, look inside. It may sound right. It may flow well on a podcast or a talk show or read well in a blog or an article or, or in a self-help book. But if we're really serious about faith and logic, if we're really serious uh, about finding actual truth and using logic to find truth, then what we need to do is say, okay, I can't find truth inside. I have, to, I have to appreciate there is a fixed reality of truth that I need to find. And just like I would in actual science, I want to do an expo exploration of all parts of my life and find that fixed reality and conform myself to it. Now, that may sound okay in some areas of our lives. But man, there are some areas of our lives that that's scary. And that sounds scary in our, to, uh, to our society. And so when we're talking about, what, what do you mean by an external fix? Are you talking about a tradition? I'm not talking about tradition. What we talked about last week is the most logical place, I would argue, and the scripture would argue, more importantly, the most logical place to find a fixed truth is if there is one who invented and created the entire universe and invented and created humanity, 
That would be the source we would want to go, the inventor, to find that fixed truth that we, that we conform our lives and our thinking to. The scripture declares that there's a, a, there is a creator being, there is a intelligent designer. We have talked about that. And the logic for that assumption in previous Faith and Logic series, you can check that out. But what we're going to just start on the premise that th there being a creator, that is the most logical source to go to. Well, where do we find what the creator has said about humanity and about society? Where we find, well, for starters, the scripture itself claims to be the very words of God. Now, that would be a matter of faith. There are some logical evidences. That's another thing we've talked about in previous series. Um, that would be a matter of faith. So what we've done is let's just take that and look at what Scripture actually says as being from God. Okay, let me get to where we're going today. One of the most important questions our society is wrestling with is where do we find truth about gender? Our generation's place that we most often look is we say, hey, every person looks inside. Go to that find truth inside. But if we're saying that that's not a logical place to look, then where would we look? And what I want to do through this series and through some upcoming podcasts is we're going to say, okay, let's look at what God says in the Bible on that subject. Now, there's a lot of parts to this. One part of this discussion is is there more than one gender or is there a broader, more than two genders or is it a broader, uh, is it a broader thing that can be defined beyond male and female? Can, uh, can gender be something that can be decided on even more broadly, everyone for themselves? That part of the discussion, we're gonna be talking, we're working on a podcast now series. We're gonna be talking about that in a few weeks. Another set of challenging questions. Just dealing with male and female, masculinity and femininity. What does scripture say about masculinity and femininity? And this is a tough question because it's one thing to say, and let me, I'm just going to shoot with you as straight as I can. It's one thing to say, here's what God says about what it means to be a man. That's one thing to say that. And honestly, um, that may push some, but maybe it's just a little bit easier to think about that and say, okay, good. Maybe uh, those of us who are men will be challenged, be corrected, be channeled. But there's something that sounds much scarier to, to then say, here's what God says about being a woman. One doesn't feel as scary. The other feels a little cringy. Why is that? And here's why I think. I think because the things that the Bible says about gender has been for so many generations not taken in their beautiful, truthful context, but have been weaponized and been used at times very often as oppressive and been used uh, to harm and to hold back, especially women. So it's hard to even want to approach 
what might the Bible say about masculinity and especially femininity with an expectation that is going to lead to freedom for both men and women. You follow me? Okay. So in the coming weeks of this series, we're going to be talking about masculinity and femininity according to the Bible. Before we get to that, I want to start, I want to take it one step back for today. And what I want us to look at is let's just start here. How did Jesus engage women during his time, during his lifetime, during his ministry? Because if we can just see his posture, his way towards women in his generation, that helps set the tone and probably will reset and refresh us to what God is going to say to men and women in a way that's life-giving and freeing. Otherwise, we may just take, our, may see what the Bible says about gender and will either adopt misinformation that's been passed down to us or will adopt redacted or parts of the Bible that are overemphasized or parts of the Bible that's just been lied about about what it says about Scripture. We need to refresh, reset, and enter into the Scripture and let it speak to us on such a sensitive topic, a very sacred ground. So here's what I want you, where I want to go today. We're going to go to Luke chapter 8. I want you to open to Luke 8 in your Bible or in your Bible app. Luke chapter 8. And we're going to look at just a couple verses, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> Luke ch chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. <clears throat> Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Now pause with me here just for a second. I want to use this as um, kind of the springboard passage. We're going to look at a couple, um, we'll look at this more broadly, but I want to use this as the anchor passage. This is describing the ministry of Jesus. He was traveling from city to city at this point, proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God, proclaiming the gospel. He was doing miracles. He was healing people. Uh, you probably, whether you're brand new to the Bible or you've um, studied a lot of the Bible, you at least know some of these miracles. He was traveling around. He had what is sometimes called an itinerant ministry. He wasn't staying in one place very long. He was traveling around. There was a larger group of disciples that he was traveling with. This is Luke chapter 8. If you go two chapters forward, you'll have Luke chapter 10, and it says he sends out 72 
of his disciples to go ahead of him into cities and to preach and to prepare for him to go there. So there's a larger group of disciples. Um, when he eventually, he'll die on the cross, he'll rise again from the dead. It says that he appears to 500 of his followers. Then he ascends to heaven and a group of about 120 of his, follow, of his disciples gather together in an upper room and they're the first Christians to receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, a lot, lot's going on there. Another message for another day. Okay, what, for, for our purposes here, understand that there was a large group of disciples, the Greek word is mathetes, a large group of mathetes that were following him. There was a larger group of believers that they were pretty sure Jesus was the guy, was the Messiah, but they didn't necessarily follow him. The language that Jesus used when he would look at certain of these uh, disciples, he'd say, I want you to follow me. And these followers were literally saying, you are my rabbi, I am your mathetes, and they would journey with him around with him. Large group, probably at any point, probably around 100 or more. Within that larger group, there are two groups within the larger group that are often talked about for their significance. One is the 12. It's referenced in here. We sometimes call them the 12 disciples, but remember there were other disciples. So just for, uh, there's another term that they're used. So, used, um, so for precision's sake today, we'll call them the 12 apostles. Another term that is used for these 12 apostles. These are famous guys like Peter, James, and John, Thomas, Judas, uh, Andrew, Peter's brother. There's some other guys like Simon the Zealot, Bartholomew, Thaddeus, Philip. These are some of the, the 12 apostles. And then there's another group of significant individuals. And all four Gospels talk about this group. Among his larger group of disciples, there was a group of women that were, his, that were lady disciples. There were women disciples that were following around with them. The same term is used when Jesus said, follow me, is the same term used for these ladies. They were following him. So these are lady disciples. These lady disciples, a few of them are referenced by name. So one is, uh, one mentioned by name, she's mentioned first, is probably the most famous of them. It's Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene had, um, was a very, very spiritually oppressed woman. There were seven demons that were cast out of Mary Magdalene. And she became a follower of Jesus. She is, um, um, uh, becomes very significant in the story. And for good reason, she's the most famous of these lady disciples. Another woman mentioned here, it's the one time she's mentioned by name, is a woman by the name of Susanna. She's mentioned as one of the lady followers here. Um, and then there's another one mentioned by name. This is a woman by the name of Joanna. Now, this is a significant woman. She, um, she was also later in the story, as Luke records it, one of the women that went to the tomb on Resurrection Sunday. We'll come back to that in a minute. Joanna was a very significant a woman who was following Jesus. From the, what we know of all the followers, the disciples of Jesus, that larger group, she probably had the highest societal rank. 
Her husband was um, the household ma- manager, Kuza. He was the household manager of, um, uh, of Herod's entire household. Now, Herod, uh, we could spend a lot of time talking about Herod and his household. I'll just give you this briefly. Herod's father, also called Herod the Great, was renowned through history as a builder. He built incredible things. The ruins are still astonishing to this day. He had fortresses all over the region. Uh, Herod, his son, this Herod, uh, the Herod that was around when Jesus was crucified, that Herod, that Herod got all of these uh, fortresses, lived in them, and he was a significant person politically in the Roman scene. He would have had dealings with Caesar and others, um, of course, subordinate to Caesar, but a significant regional ruler. Uh, Joanna's husband was the household manager of Herod. So best we can tell, all of the personal side of Herod's expansive household, Joanna's husband ran it. So the multiple fortresses, the, the palace hosting dignitaries from all over the world, you could probably say like her husband is like a global uh, CEO of a Fortune 500 company, like just would have been an extremely wealthy, powerful, high-ranking uh, person. And in Roman society, while um, by our standards, we're still very restrictive for women, they were, by their day standards, a little bit more open if you were in a higher Roman society. So Joanna had considerable means and considerable resources, but was following Jesus. And, I want to come back to this, she was leveraging her resources to support, directly support, Jesus' ministry. Maybe that's something that you've maybe never given thought to, like, who financially supported Jesus' ministry? Well, what's described here is Joanna was a key figure in that. Let, let me come back to that in just a minute. So we have Mary Magdalene, Susanna, and you have Joanna. Um, there's others as well, um, uh, others that were uh, disciples. Um, a woman by the name of Salome, S-A-L-O-M-E, Salome. She's another um, lady disciple that's referenced several times. Another um, woman goes by the name of Mary, mother of James the Younger. That's a mouthful. You say, wow, that's a lot. The problem was is there's like 47 Marys in the story of Jesus, and it's hard to keep track of them. She's a significant character, as is another one of the Marys, Mary of Bethany, as in a Mary and Martha, other significant followers. Now, the fact that Luke references this, and again, that all of the four Gospels reference this group of lady disciples is very significant. Why is that significant? Let me reference the Jewish culture of the day. This is, let me be really clear, this is not Torah. This is not the Old Testament, the Jewish Tanakh. This is the Jewish culture of the day and how they interpreted some of this and some of the laws of that day. So this is the culture that Jesus was operating in. Um, This is a description of one scholar of what the culture was like. A Jewish male was forbidden to talk to a woman on the street, like in public, even if she was his wife, daughter, or sister. 
So think for a second about the ministry of Jesus. I mean, maybe you can think in your mind of encounters Jesus had with women. The healings. There was one woman and she was bent over for 18 years. And Jesus went up to her in the synagogue on the Sabbath, made a, huge, made a big issue about it, and he healed her, spoke to her. There's one woman in Capernaum. She had suffered for 12 years with, a, with an issue of blood. And he paused, stopped an entire crowd, called her out into the middle of the crowd and had a conversation with her. I mean, just pause just on those two for a second. Understand every encounter Jesus publicly has with a woman is a scandalous violation of their culture. It is making a ginormous statement that we often as moderns read right over. When, he, when they bring to him a woman caught in adultery, which means there's another person there, and they just bring a woman he starts, he dismantles the whole situation. And then as people are leaving in their shame, rescuing this woman from this moment, he speaks redemptive words right to her publicly. When he meets with the Samaritan woman, he's not only, and the disciples find him speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well, and they're like, Minds are blown. It says, they're all saying, what is he doing? This is not only violating their cultural norms for how a man would speak across gender. It's violating their religious norms of speaking to, another, to someone of a different faith, the Samaritan faith. How about when he speaks to a Gentile woman who comes begging for healing for her daughter? And Jesus speaks to her and has a dialogue and marvels at her publicly. He's shattering the gender norms and the racial norms of the day. He's shattering their concepts, annihilating them in a way that's so powerfully redemptive to those individuals. Every time, to read it sensitively, to read the gospel sensitively, every time you see Jesus publicly speaking with a woman, it shattered their tradition of the day in order to honor that woman. But that's not all. He didn't just speak openly to women. These women were numbered among his disciples and his followers. That further shattered the convention of the day. Listen to what it says. This is again, um, describing their culture in the Talmud, which is one of the, the, the Jewish interpretations of the law. This is what it said. It was regarded as impious to teach a woman the law. Listen, it would be better for the words of the law to be burned, said the Talmud, than they should be entrusted to a woman. 
When we read uh, the story of Mary and Martha, and Martha's busy getting ready for this feast and all these guests, and Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet being taught, our minds as moderns just go to like these two sisters, like one's like just spending time with Jesus doing her devotions and the other one's really busy like cleaning the house and don't be too busy, you know, spend time with Jesus is usually where we go with that passage. But we probably, we miss over what the most shocking part of that whole story. Jesus is saying, he, he's obliterating their cultural norms and their tradition. And he's honoring Mary by teaching her the word of God. It sounds so simple and it sounds, well, that's how it should be. Of course, that's how it should be. Jesus came bursting into his culture saying, this is what's right. Not only that, but he then said, these are, they're part of my followers that are going around with me. They were, they were some of his mathetes. That would have been scandalous in his day. No rabbi would have women numbered among their followers. But every one of the gospels records it. And it records their names. But that's not all. Not only are they numbered among his followers, these women are women of significance in this story. Let me just give you some data. Um, when we think about um, some of these, the 12 apostles that we listed, let me just give some comparison. There are some that, uh, like Peter, James, and John, they're some of the main characters in the Gospels. There's others that are hardly referenced at all, like Bartholomew and Simon the Zealot, but they're also some of the 12 apostles. And then there's some that are somewhere in the middle, like Andrew, like Andrew, for example, um, Peter's brother, very significant, very famous disciple and apostle of Jesus. Andrew is mentioned by name 12 times in the four Gospels. That's significant. That's a lot of times. In comparison, let me just give you two, Mary Magdalene and also Martha of Bethany, also mentioned by name 12 times. Let me give you some more data. Um, there are some of the lesser mentioned uh, apostles, Nathaniel uh, mentioned six times, Bartholomew mentioned by name three times, Simon the Zealot referenced three times. Um, that one I referenced, Mary, the mother of James the Younger, referenced seven times more than some of the lesser disciples put together. These are women of significance. Um, it's not just the number of times that they're referenced, it's actually their significance in the story. What is their significance in the story? Well, for starters, did you hear the function that, that we know at least Joanna and maybe uh, Susanna and Mary Magdalene had in some capacity as well? Um, these women like Joanna, they were the patrons behind Jesus' earthly ministry. They were the financial support behind Jesus' behind Jesus' ministry. Now, were there others? There were probably others, but there are none others that are listed by name. Except the only exception is Joseph of Arimathea, and he offers Jesus' um, body. He offers his tomb for Jesus' body. But the only one that referenced the, the patron, the, being a patron for the ministry is Joanna and these women. That's significant. What else is their significance in the story? These women are referenced multiple times as being present at the crucifixion. That's not necessarily true of the other 12 apostles. These women are also referenced consistently as being present at the tomb. 
very clearly without any of the other disciples or apostles. They are at the tomb on the morning of the resurrection. They have very significant roles to the story. I want you to think about some of the ways that these women are, the women in the story of Jesus are honored. Are there ways that some of the men are honored? Of course, those are talked about often. Let's pause and reflect on the way some of these women are honored in really astonishing and beautiful ways. At the birth of Jesus, um, Mary Joseph take baby Jesus to the temple to dedicate him, and there's an older man there named Simeon, and he speaks this beautiful prophetic word. He speaks it over Mary and Joseph in conversation with Mary and Joseph. Then they come across a woman by the name of Anna, and Anna sees Jesus. It has such an impression on her that she then starts declaring, and it says, to all those who are waiting for the redemption of Israel about what she's seen. Whereas Simeon spoke over Mary and Joseph, Anna went out and told everyone she could um, what we would put together as she's seen the Messiah. Now, both had beautiful ministries, but one scholar reading this very sensitively said it like this. If you look at it like this, Anna is the first evangelist for Jesus as the Messiah to God's people beautiful. Who's the first evangelist, not to the Jewish people, but then who's the first evangelist to the Samaritan people? The woman at the well. Who's the first group of people that are told about the resurrection? It's Mary, mother of James the Younger. It's Joanna. It's Mary Magdalene, probably some others. As well, they go to the tomb, and it is those group of women going to the tomb on resurrection morning that God sends angels to, and they're the first to hear of the resurrection. They're given that honor. They're the first that have the privilege of then preaching the resurrection. Because they take it to the other disciples, and they say, he's not there. The angels said he's risen. It's they are given the privilege of declaring the resurrection first. And Joanna and Mary, the mother of James the Younger, they go off, but Mary Magdalene stays behind. Why? Because Jesus has one of the highest honors of all. From what the scripture tells us, she's the first one to see the risen Lord in the garden. Do you know what that means? That means Mary Magdalene is the first Christian. Because you can't be a Christian without believing in the risen Lord. Um, think of some of the, the other firsts um, in Paul's ministry. In his second ministry, he ends up in uh, Europe. In uh, Philippi is his first stop in Europe. The first convert there is a uh, businesswoman, a business owner named Lydia. She's the first convert that we're told of in Europe, the continent. Um, how about this? I, I've saved... This one, it might be one of the greatest honors you can conceive of. Can we talk about Mary, the mother of Jesus, for a second? Housing in your body the incarnate creator God. God in the flesh, kicking and being entrusted to carry the Messiah of the world and the one time God entered into the, in the flesh into his creation. 
And the angel says, you will be called blessed. What an incredible honor. Here's what I want you to see. There's more that we, we could talk about in this text, and there's, but here's what I just want you to see. I want you to see Jesus' way when he entered into his culture. It was shockingly, scandalously obliterating of his culture in order to honor those women around him who are made in the image of God. Now this continues into the first few generations. It continues in shocking ways, speaking into oppressive Greek and Roman cultures, shocking ways into the New Testament, and into the first few generations of Christianity, whereas some scholars have said that it was the, it was the church and the Christian faith's view of women, of honoring and elevating and liberating women that is a key source to the ex growing and expanding um, early church. And what we're going to do is um, this Wednesday, we're going to release a podcast episode talking about those things. How did what Jesus start carry into the rest of the New Testament and the first uh, couple generations of Christianity? I want to invite you to listen in. I wish we had time to go into all that today, but we're going to look at those Greek and Roman cultures and how that played out in that first and second and third generation in the church. But here's what, where this lands for us today. Let's just hit a refresh button and not just go with our view of the Bible that we take from either tradition or culture that, that caricatures what the Bible says about masculinity and femininity. And here's what I want to challenge us, challenge you as a Christian, as a man, as a woman. I want to challenge each of us to have the courage First of all, to have the courage to look and see what does the creator God say on such a sensitive subject matter. Don't dismiss it. Don't just adopt what you've heard or what you think the Bible says, either what your Christian context told you what the Bible says or what your secular cultural context told you what the Bible says. Let's look at the biblical data and have the courage to see what God is saying. Secondly, here's the challenge, is not to use what the scripture says as a weapon confirming whatever it is that you've already adopted, but be willing to let it challenge and speak into your life about misinformation, again, that you've either gotten from Tradition or culture, let, it let the scripture conform what you've adopted about those categories of male and female, men and women. Let the scripture do that because we want to look into fixed truth of reality and let it transform us on the inside. And lastly, seeing how Jesus operated in culture, men and women, Wherever it is that you find oppression or suppression of women, be an active advocate against it. 
So where you find that if you are in the marketplace, where you find that in, in your company culture, or maybe not in just the intangible culture, but maybe it's in very tangible ways like wage discrimination. A man and a woman doing the same job, putting the same amount of time in, but for an inexplicable reason, a woman is being paid less. Speak out about that. And where your sphere of responsibility, speak out against that. Where you see the intangibles in not only a workplace environment, but in a home environment. Be a change agent and speak out against that where it's not just intangibles, but it's hurtful words denigrating a man or a woman. Speak out against that. Be an advocate against that. That is the tradition of what Jesus did. At times, what he did very publicly was scandalously for his day. Why? Because men and women are made in the image of God. And men and women are his daughters and his sons. And he loves his sons and daughters. And we want to adopt the father's heart towards men and women and be agents for, it is for freedom that he has set us free. I want to close by reading you one story out of Luke. That's how I want to close. Luke was... um, It's after the resurrection, and there's two disciples that are traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And these disciples are talking about all the things that have happened. It's resurrection Sunday, so on Friday, Jesus died. Saturday, everyone was confused. Sunday, they're now leaving from the feast, and they're traveling, and all of a sudden, Jesus appears walking next to them, but he's shielded from them. They don't recognize him. And they're talking. Let me just read to you what happens. And he says, hey, what are you talking about? And they say, then one of them said, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here, there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Now watch. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that, even, that they had even seen a vision of angels who had said that he was alive Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Here's where I want to end. Some of you, there is a Jesus that is right before you. There is a Jesus that gave his life to redeem you, to save you, to set you free It is for freedom that he set us free, to set us free from the greatest chains, the chains of sin and eternal death, he set us free. And what the scripture says is if God loves you 
so, that much that he didn't even spare his son? Would he hold back anything else from you? And so I present to you today the message of those ladies that were at the tomb that morning. Jesus was buried in the tomb having been crucified for our sins. But he's no longer there, he's alive. I present that message to you as a message of freedom and I wanna invite you if you've never put your faith in Jesus, that you can trust him to bring about the forgiveness of sins by his death on the cross, but you can trust him to be your Lord, that he has a path to free you as your king. Follow in the, that path. Make him your savior and your Lord, your king. Let me lead us in a prayer. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Hey, if you're here and you say, look, I've been resistant to go all in and following Jesus. There could be many reasons for that, but maybe today you consider that message of Jesus, that message of those ladies who are at the tomb. He's alive. Take that on faith. Find salvation today. If that's you, I want to lead you in a prayer right there in your seats, whether you're Cooper City or watching online or you're here. Just simply say this to Jesus silently in your, in your seat. Just say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I make you my king. I make you my savior. You saved me for all eternity. I surrender to you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you put your faith in Jesus for the first time, uh, what I want to encourage you is to go to um, cityrev.org slash faith. You can just grab your cell phone and go to cityrev.org slash faith. It's going to ask you a few questions so we can mail you a Bible as you're beginning this journey with following the Lord. But we would love to, even better, if you're here in person, we'd love to put a Bible in your hands today. You can go to guest services in the front lobby and just let them know about that decision. They'll put a Bible in your hands uh, today. Church, we are going to end with a song that reflects on all the incredible things that God has said over us. All those incredible redemptive things, his grace, his salvation, his love for us. And we're going to celebrate those things. Would you stand with me as we close with this song? Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.